G'day ladies and gents, welcome to Life of Mine, the go-to mining podcast. Matty Michael here, live from the Jundee Donger. I have been summoned to work to regain a bit of my underground mining credibility. Can't wait to bend a few bolts on my first day back. Speaking of bent bolts, a man that hates a bent bolt is back for another round two episode. Tom Parrott, Principal, Geotechnical Engineer at Entech. Previously, a guest for our ground support episode. I'll put the link to that yarn in the notes. Go back and have a listen to that. A great overview of every ground support product known to man. But in this part two yarn, part one of two. This is part one. We went on for so long, I've split it up into two. Part one of the stress, seismicity and convergence episode. Mostly stress and seismicity. What is it? We go over it all. What are the differences between stress, seismicity, convergence? What ground conditions induce high seismicity? How can mines in South Africa go to 4,000 metres deep where Aussie mines struggle to reach 2,000? Why is the Cambalda region a known seismic area? Block cave versus sublevel cave. Meshing of development faces. We cover it all. Very exciting chat. And as I said, this is part one. Head on to part two. To hear more about this, you're going to love it. So let's get into our stress and seismicity episode with Tommy Parrott from Entech. I better, um, I never usually do this, but I. Actually, these questions were actually come out very well, so I'm going to refer to these questions I sent you, Tom. No problem. <laughs> they, they were good. Well, I, ne- I never usually go to this much effort, but once I once I started jotting these questions down, I'm like, there is some value in actually preparing for episodes. Definitely. This one could start a ship now because I'm putting too much effort. You put the mockers on us. <laughs> yeah, you jinxed us. No, but no, they're good. Good questions, relevant questions, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting about them with you and sharing a, a bit of knowledge and experience on these topics so and what are they let's let the cat out of the bag well stress what are the topics oh we're talking about stress and seismicity today now i want to know are they the same different are they a brother or sister what is the difference between stress and seismicity in relation to mining well they are intrinsically linked you don't have seismicity without stress or change in stress we can have stress without seismicity um but Seismicity is a direct relate uh, a direct result of changes in stress. So we're causing changes in stress underground when we mine and create voids, stopes, development headings. And seismicity is the natural response to that change. So we've taken out a volume of rock. Stress can no longer pass through that volume. So it's finding another um, pathway to um, to travel through. And that change in the stress field sometimes generate seismicity um so i guess that kind of leads into your next question um why is there seismicity and and what is seismicity so seismicity is the response generated when we create voids underground it's the redistribution of stress or strain or pressure in the rock um and it's basically the sound or the energy release due to rock breaking or slippage occurring on faults, structures, joints, that kind of thing. So it's always the physical movement of a rock in a way. Not not the energy, but like the energy resulting in rock moving somewhere in the mine. 
yeah, we've we've induced a change by mining a void, a tunnel, a development cut, stope, what have you. The rock is redistributing those stresses because it can't pass through air, and these stresses will concentrate in in certain areas around voids, and sometimes it'll make a bit of noise, sometimes it'll make a big bang. That's what we're here to talk about, I guess, is mm. distinguishing when, where, how, why, um, just to try and shed a bit of light on it. So, the, the, is there a relation between the noise, well, and we'll go into what this is measured in, but the amount of noise, is that proportional to the amount of movement there is, like a tiny little crack, like nothing's really moved, it's just a bit of pressure that's relieved somewhere, how does all that work? I guess it all comes down to the strength of the rock versus the stress and presence of structures in the rock. Very strong rocks um, might not exhibit any changes with a, a small change in stress, but weaker rocks, because they're weaker, might not handle that change in stress or pressure as well and might relate or result in new cracks forming, slips along structures, or even deformation or squeezing. And, uh, and what, we're, what we'll refer to as, I guess, convergence when you're the, the old war stories of taking a bogger into a drive and then two days later you can't get it out yeah. because it's it's converged and we'll get in, we'll get into that. And now why is there mines, you talked about the type of rock, whether it bangs or cracks, is there mines that will have high stress but not have any seismicity? Is it possible? Generally no. High stress. It depends what we call high stress because like I said, it comes back to this relationship between the strength of the rock and the stress or pressure within the rock. Really strong rock might exhibit very little or no response to a change in stress where a weak, weaker rock will. Um, so when you say a strong rock, give me an example. Um, Cambout or basalt, you know, 250 to 300 megapascals, like it's super strong, it's like steel. Um, the basalt's very, are very strong, they do exhibit some seismicity. Um, in certain circumstances, less likely to, I guess, incur seismicity or, or damage at kind of moderate depths, four to six hundred meters, um, you know, and and can be, you know, quite strong and resilient in certain mining environments. So it's, it's quite an interesting topic to talk about, actually. There's some deep mines in WA, um, and certain rock masses within those mines generally behave well. Do some show some signs of stress such as dog earring or a bit of bagging behind mesh onion skinning but not necessarily seismic within that given rock unit <coughs> but they might have a, a weaker rock unit at the same depth and they have a lot of significant issues with so um, there's a few mines in the gold fields um gold and nickel mines that you kind of get to this depth around 600 meters for plus or minus where mines do tend to start exhibiting um, seismicity might start out as rock noise popping and cracking after a heading or after a stoke firing to um, slightly more larger seismic events where you might feel a bit of a vibration it's heard throughout the mine we might even feel a bit of a rumble on surface um, to the really deep highly seismically active mines I don't know if we I don't really want to name mines but mm. yeah there's, there's mines within WA that have significant events that cause um, a large amount of damage Drives can be destroyed. Multiple levels can be destroyed as a result of this seismicity, and it's that's a big issue that we increasingly um, face 
you know, in mining in WA because we've been going deeper for some time, but, you know, we're mining at depths of up to 1,800 metres in some cases in Western Australia. South Africa goes down to, like, I think Manang is four kilometres deep. Yes. Mining, yeah. And then how do South African mines get that deep? Is there, and I did, someone gave me a bit of LinkedIn advice once, like their stress profile is different to Australian mines. How does that all work? Yeah, so the gradient, um, we refer to the stress gradient, that is how much does the stress or the pressure increase with increasing depth because that is a known relationship. Um, in South Africa, the the major principal stress, the big one, is the vertical stress and that is purely due to the weight of the overburden or rock above us. And obviously the deeper that we go, the, the increase in rock pressure or stress. Within Australia, our um, major principal stress within Western Australia is typically sub-horizontal, whereas in South Africa it's sub-vertical. Um, and that's because of intercontinental tectonic stresses. So we have high horizontal stresses because of forces acting on the um, Anglo-Australian plate. And so it's pushing the pushing the country together. Yeah, that, yeah, it'll... and and it varies, you know, spatially. Yeah. WA is probably a bit higher than the East Coast, for instance, and the goldfields in particular. So, our horizontal stress is roughly two to three times greater than the vertical stress. So that means that at a minus a thousand meters deep in Australia, we'll have a similar pressure or stress to a mine in South Africa that's three kilometers deep. Geez, that answers that question well, Tom. That is, I've always wondered that and I didn't understand it when someone else explained it to me, but that makes a lot okay. of sense now. Yeah. So we have high horizontal stresses and there's different things that affect how stress and seismicity presents. It's the strength of the rock, it's the pressure, and it's quite often the, the structure and the geometry of the ore body. So the South Africans mine these big flat tabular ore bodies that go on for kilometres. So they're extracting huge areas. They'll, they might only be mining, you know, half a metre to one to two metres thick, but they're mining over square kilometres and they have to leave pillars behind to hold up the roof or the hanging wall. Um, but they can they continue to mine at significant depth because these mineralised horizons just go on forever. So are they, is everything just perpendicular to Australia over there? Like they, even the, the ore bodies are flat instead of vertical, there's stresses. Yes. Goes is vertical, not horizontal. Yeah, yeah. So, and and that's why I guess some South Africans might struggle with the concepts when they come to Australia because our bodies are mostly sub-vertical to vertical. We do have some flat-lying bodies, and our major stress is uh, sub-horizontal. So in Australia, does the as the depth increase? Even though our principal stress is horizontal, as the depth increases, the, the horizontal stress obviously increases as well yeah, with depth. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, and that, that's why we have these mines um, that become seismically active even at shallower depths. I guess the Kandana region is a bit of an anomaly. Um, it's not necessarily a higher stress gradient, but it's the orientation of those stresses in relation to the ore body and particular structures. So they get a lot of um, faults that mobilise due to the orientation of stress, which results in the seismicity. And every mine's different. Um, you can take the knowledge from one mine and try and apply it at another mine, but they're all different um, due to 
strength, stress, or what do you, that kind of stuff. So it makes it really interesting for uh, people like myself who are trying to figure it out. Why, you know, why are we getting seismicity? Where are we seeing it? Why, uh, why does it cause damage in some areas and not others? And how do we control that uh, that seismicity? So it's it's a a fact or a phenomena that we have to manage increasingly with depth. We manage it principally through um, mining method and mining sequence to try and minimise the effects of concentrating stresses where we don't want them to, or that might. We try and avoid creating unfavourable geometries within our mining fronts, um, and then we use other measures such as the ground support techniques. We use placement of development as far away as possible, and using ground support that can dissipate that energy released during a large seismic event. I'll gather ground support is your like in a way your last line of defence with seismicity. Pretty the much method and sequencing would be a lot more important isn't it definitely we need to set up the mine correctly um select a mining method that will manage and mitigate those issues as much as possible and then ground support um is our last line of defense plus other soft measures like controlling the re-entry time into areas that might be experiencing seismicity or using monitoring um systems like seismic monitoring systems so we can see what's happening in real time and we can look at um the the slowdown in the rate of seismicity so we can know that it's now safe for people and equipment to go back into certain areas right as I, as i said i won't mention mines specifically um but i will refer to mines that i know that are highly seismic highly seismic and i'm sure you'll figure out which ones they are from how i explain it irrelevant of mining method take away the fact that of what mining method you choose for a mine what are some of the things that will contribute to a mine being a seismic mine without the relevant of mining method is it the ground conditions is it faults structures what are some of the big things that yeah. make the highly seismic mines highly seismic no matter what you do um yeah so i guess the the three keys again is strength of the rock the the stress or the rate of increase in stress with increasing depth so strength, stress, and the presence of structures, be it large-scale faults or the jointing within the rock mass at a kind of dry scale. They're the three keys. Um, and generally, increase in mining depth will potentially at some point result in seismicity. So let's say can, can, use Cambalda as a Cambalda nickel mines as a as an example that were how does that work? Or how does that affect make that a seismic mine? Cambalda mines are interesting. So they have um an ultramafic rock rock unit which is that telki serpentinized soapy rock um and that contacts with the very hard brittle mafic rock which is basalt and in between is where you would have your mineralizing horizon so that's where your um yeah nickel massive sulfides are sitting at the contact between the two and quite often that soapy material is on the hanging wall but i guess what complicates is the presence of dikes, porphyritic dikes that crosscut the ore body. It's just they're there due to either the mineralizing process or there's a big granite dome sitting out there and these porphyritic fluids have bled off and they crosscut the ore bodies. And these porphyritic dikes are, I'm not speaking for all the mines, but some of the mines are very brittle and they 
and very stiff and they tend to attract stress. So stiffer materials will generally um, load up or attract stress and weaker, softer materials uh, don't. And so these, I guess, these stiff porphyries and their orientation, like kind of cross-cutting the old body, um, like stress raises or they attract stress. And when development used to occur or approach these porphyries, that's when they get a bit excited, start generating lots of noise because we're mining voids, we're developing and creating tunnels and also stopes. And these these porphyries would uh, readjust and and make noise, generate seismicity. So that's quite a, a unique um, problem to Cambelder. It's it's these multiple materials with contrasting stiffness that kind of complicates things. So it's a point of movement. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And and when they expose this soapy ultramaping material, it it squeezes as well. So they've got kind of multiple things happening there. Now, if we move up to say the Murchison area up that way, some seismic mines that are caves up there and very well-renowned seismic mines. Why, give us a bit of context to that. Is that a mining mining method induced or ground as well? Um, a bit of both. I think initially, look at it as uh, an ultra strong, very strong beef ore body, very strong, very stiff. And I think f from what I can tell, the, the sequence, how the mine was sequenced previously, mining back to a diminishing pillar may have been a contributing factor to the seismicity, so unfavorable geometry of the mining front, um, as well as super strong ore body. And I believe that particular mine has done a lot. It now retreats from the center back to the extremities, which is very good. You're retreating away and, and pushing stresses back into your abutments and in a top-down manner. So we don't create any pillars with our mining sequence, but they still deal with a lot of seismicity because just the, just the nature of the beast, it's um, relatively high stresses and strong stiff rock, and that's the natural response to you know mining, mining that already. And certainly the rate of mining can affect things too. So if we're trying to increase the rate of mining, we're not giving the rock as much time to adjust. So the, the larger the volume of rock we move, and the faster we move it, um, it becomes a bit less predictable in trying to forecast where seismicity may or may not occur. So increased or fast mining rates is not a necessarily a good thing either for managing seismicity. Now, let's talk caving. Caving's interesting in both the development and the production sense. Now, this was a, a and I'm pretty sure it was an Oz IMM paper that I read um, about Ernest Henry. So it was a paper, we can disclose that, it is publicly available. Um, and it was to do with, as because Ernest Henry was a bit different as it, it was like sort of a 45 degree cave. So, and when their paper was about the high stress levels, when they were developing the slot drives outside the, the abutment drives and looking on plan view, those abutment drives were outside the cave on that side and they were just generating very high stress. Take us through, and I, I disclosed this in a, a previous episode. I was at a, working at a cave mine, scaling a face, uh, jumbo scale in the face in one of the abutment drives, approaching breakthrough, and like literally ejected and smashed the window. Thank God I had a bloody window on the front, yeah. but that was the pressure in that face was just I couldn't. It was unbelievable. This thing that just 
big massive rock that just shot and all the way back to the jumbo um that's yeah, pretty frightening stuff yeah chain so chain of money is required oh yeah definitely <laughs> definitely so talk about the develop we'll talk about the development phase of in cave mines and then i guess the stress that gets induced during production how it gets distributed i guess won't go into what a cave is like there's a big bloody void sinking from the top like yeah. the, the whole thing and nothing is backfilled with anything semi-solid it's all broken rock yeah cave material so and i guess sl sublevel caves versus block caves are slightly different um sublevel caves we're blasting the ore when we're bogging it and we are inducing the hanging wall to fail like ernest henry sublevel cave um and i guess with the increasing depth and increasing extraction the stresses within the abutments increase with depth because you've got this big footprint like you said of a void a big kind of cylinder or tube <clears throat> that we're expanding down plunge and the stresses in the abutments that is on the edges of the cave increase with depth and increasing extraction ratio so it's always tricky trying to put your development in place um, with increasing depth just to make sure as you mentioned developing in highly stressed rock mass there there can be issues with rock ejection and other other problems with developing in high stress um and but you don't want to put all of your development in too soon because it has to be sustainable and remain open for a long time so a lot of work gets done into timing the placement of these um slot drives and ex extraction drives i think you Henry, they create like a a slot which effectively will then cut off the stress on that level and make things a little bit um I guess less active for the remainder of the level but it's always typical when you're cutting the virgin ground and trying to create slots or development in highly stressed rock mass um and that just brings me to a, an interesting question which i'll throw back to the host meshing of faces it's becoming more and more widely adopted even in non-seismic mines so at least we see a push on the east coast and it's filtering over here be good to get your feedback obviously that's one of the measures used in seismically active mines mesh the face to control um scats or ejection of rocks we good to get your feedback obviously it's actually a bit of mess you're going to throw up and it's tramp metal when you come to the bog it out as well but you know what's the jumbo operator's perspective on mesh in the face oh it's 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 more the it's more the charge up perspective that i um think of because usually when it's in good ground and you're putting it up i why you're putting it up technically and it, and it holds up pretty well the the issue is when you put it up in poor ground um no matter no matter how much you scale the face in poor ground sometimes there's still going to be stuff that peels off the face so the 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 issues come during charge up and boring like it the mesh bags up that much because you can you can leave it out you you got to leave your plates out a little bit so you can't ram at home and have it fully tightened across the face because then when you're boring every bit of material that comes off you end up having to just rip the whole thing off to bleed it all so that they can charge the holes um so the, the issue is with charge up um i i believe and sometimes sometimes meshing the face can be used as a bit of a band-aid oh, i don't have to scale as much on meshing the face but you're just creating more problems for for charger um but yeah look inclines i think you'd nearly have to mesh them every time no yeah. matter what um what the ground type or condition or whatever is because you 
you you just got that natural angle that things want to fall towards you. When when whereas at your decline, you you gradient down, everything sort of naturally leans over. Flat drives not as much of an issue. Um, it does come down to charge up manually scaling as well, but it, it all comes down to the attention to detail in the for the jumbo scaling. But look, poor ground. Um, yeah, the the biggest trick I've found is actually leaving leaving it as loose as possible. Like, I mean, like have your plates hanging out, you know, what, to a couple of hundred mil when you install it, nice and loose, bore the face out, and then so everything falls out while you while you're boring, and then when you finish reaming your holes, use your reamers to push those bolts in and tight, tighten it up. That's that that's the best way I've found. But it um yeah, look, I've had it in poor ground, can poor ground, done it in poor ground, and it just bags up, and it's an absolute nightmare. And you've just got to, you've honestly just got to, you can't leave it like that because charge up and just inducing more of a hazard for charge up, and especially when they're putting their hands through the mesh to actually try and charge the holes. What well, you you got cutting hazards there? Yeah. Um, but yeah, if the ground is poor, it is poor. But site. There's poor ground, then there's seismic ground. So look, if if it's seismic, I would want it meshed. If there's a if there if it's hard and look, it might be all good, but if there's a risk of things popping and getting thrown at you, I would I would want it meshed, no matter what how hard it has to be. Yeah. So geez, you, geez, you got me going about jumbo stuff. I took over Sorry. the interview there, yeah, right? But we digress. What What are your views? What What and what? I guess what's the general consensus is it's a bit like the MDX bolts. The jury's still out. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, but we see more and more mining companies adopting meshing all faces as the standard. Some are still a bit not resistant, but they just need a bit of a push to take that step. It's kind of the, the final frontier, the final surface that we that we don't put any support in. You know, in the late nineties, there's a big push to install mesh on the backs and um, shoulders walls, and it's gradually crept down to the gray line in a lot of mines, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But the face, we don't. We rely on the jumbo operator to scale it, and we also rely on charge up to do a proper hand scale before they go near it and um, start charging it. But we still see incidents of people being struck by rocks at bases, um, which is not good. So meshing is a pain in the bum on the face, but if it stops people getting injured, then we should do it. The And the thing that's not, and this is where I guess the computer jumbos will come in eventually, but in the future, I would assume that computer jumbos will be boring all the faces to some extent. And what they do now, the 422Is, they automatically detect the furthest point. And then, because, you know, every face has some, even a apparent square face has a little bit of dishing. So like the middle might be, 200 mil in front of the floor so every bit extra that you drill past i have found that flat that furthest point or drill past the actual void you're pulling that creates that shattering and dishing and extra scaling on the face so a lot of it can't and a lot of poor faces are due to holes being bored too far or not being actually squared up to a perfect plane when it's blasted so all the uneven that's what creates the dishing that's what creates more scats so a lot of i think the future boring accuracy boring clean square faces very hard to do by eye like it's all a bit of guesswork that's where the computer boring jumbos will come into play because they'll 
bore quicker because they're tuned to bore quicker, but they'll actually bore shorter and everything will be perfectly square and your faces will be in better condition. So, yeah, right. yeah watch that space. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do. Might, some, might be some tutorials coming out about that on the Life of Mine app coming in a couple of months. Yeah. Right, part one of stress and seismicity. Done and dusted. Now, head if you liked it, because who bloody wouldn't have liked it, make sure you head on to part two. Tommy and I continue the chat about block caves versus sunk level caves. Uh, Argyle, we talked about Argyle. Why did that place, that block cave, have so much ground convergence? And what controls better for stress, sublevel caves or block caves? Which would you choose? Which would Tommy choose? Now, we also use the Campbell and North Mine as an example, looking at development in diverging ground at a kilometre deep. How do you analyse the predicted stress for new developments like that? And how do you measure the principal stress directions for any underground mine? Look, ideal mining sequences, plenty more in that episode. So head on to part two. An absolute cracker of an episode like this one. Thanks again, Tommy Barrett, and thanks for NTech for allowing Tommy to come and give his expertise on this great topic. Right, everyone, stay safe out there. Put your rock noise cards in. Who wrote?